Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. Welcome to the Good Friday episode of the God's Planning Triduum Retreat. Um, as Father Gregory laid out for us yesterday, we're doing three days of seven, which is very nice, very biblical, two perfect numbers, a three and a seven there. Um, one traditional devotion for Good Friday is to meditate on the seven last words of Christ. So this is not something that um, Father Jacob Bertrand thought up. Um, this, is a, this is a centuries-old devotion. So uh, observances of the faithful on Good Friday um, would often include the stations, um, say at noon, which was the time that, um, which is the time that Jesus would have arrived at the cross, um, and uh, then the seven last words would be preached, and then the Passion service would, would have been held at three. That's the traditional time, um, the hour of the Lord's death, the hour of divine mercy. Um, so uh, you have a kind of full afternoon span of Catholic devotion um, planned for the Passion. My own family on Good Friday um, would attend stations at noon. We would come back to the house and then we had to remain quiet. We couldn't turn on the radio or watch TV until we came home from the Good Friday Passion service. And I remember those would have been about two hours we would have been at home, right? Quiet, uh, seeming absolutely torturous as a child. Uh, and yet it was a good, it was a good and noble practice. And I'd commend it to you if you, um, if you're able, if you're able to do that this Good Friday, uh, to not do anything between the hours of noon and three, the time which Jesus spent on the cross um, to mark that time as holy, to reclaim it as we claim every time um, by prayer, to reclaim it for, for Christ, for his designs. Um, so again, what are the seven last words? The seven last words are the, are the phrases in scripture, the phrases compiled from the different gospels that Jesus says on the cross. So they, they, are, not, um, they are not just um, seven random teachings of Christ. They are, in fact, the seven final things that Jesus says to us, um, the, 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 seven, the seven ultimates, if you will, of the gospel uh, and for that reason, they have, they have a special place um, in our hearts, a special place in our devotion, and are worth our meditation. So the first of the seven last words is the phrase um, from Luke's gospel, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Only one person knows all of the details of the Passion. And that is Christ. Well, we could say the Father if we want to distinguish between the persons of the Trinity. But only God knows all of the details of the Passion. The Blessed Mother knew what was going to happen. She wasn't surprised by Jesus' death. But the Blessed Mother didn't know every detail of how things were going to unfold. She just knew that Christ had come to save. Christ knew everything that would happen. The different actors of the Passion didn't. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Those who crucify Christ have, have a kind of limited knowledge, uh, limited by their own ignorance, limited by their own unwillingness to, uh, to profess that Christ is Messiah. Even the disciples, those who love the Lord, those who love the Lord have, a, have a limited knowledge of, of, of what, what exactly is being undertaken here. And Christ's prayer 
Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, brings this all to mind, that the passion is undertaken by God's providence, that God knows what is at hand and that God is unfolding. God is unfolding the work of the passion according to his divine plan and not anyone else's. One of the things that we have to be aware of or cautious of is that Christ isn't in saying these words, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's not giving an excuse for, for sin. He's not saying it's okay. Um, the sin of the world is okay because they simply don't know what they're doing. It's not that sort of relativizing. Um, but in a way, it opens, it at least opens the door to us to begin to recognize that we don't know the full weight and the full measure and the full impact of our sin and the way in which Christ suffered on the cross. Um, we don't know all of those ramifications. And often by grace, our Lord preserves us from seeing the full kind of impact and, and kind of destruction that sin on our soul and on the world um, imparts. Uh, but at the same time, our Lord is 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 working um, right now as uh, on Good Friday um, through His crucifixion to still all the same save us, even uh, even um, even though we're not fully conscious of the, ram the, the 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 entire ramifications of of our actions, of our lack of actions, of our of our sin, our pride, our greed. Uh, he still begs our forgiveness, even in the midst of his suffering um, on on the cross. Yeah, Saint, Saint Augustine talks about three sources of sin: ignorance, malice, and weakness. Uh, so we can be stirred up in our passions, we can be twisted in our wills, or we can be darkened in our minds. But ultimately, all sin is a kind of form of madness. Uh, that's not to say that we're not culpable for it, right? Um, I think sometimes when people describe mortal sin, they place too much emphasis on like full knowledge, full consent, grave matter, as if to say that you're only competent to make or commit a mortal sin if you know exactly what you're doing in like thoroughgoing fashion. I mean, so, I mean, that's just, that's not the criteria of the church. Uh, but still, nonetheless, there is a kind of madness at work in sin. And the Lord sees that and undoes that by infusing a kind of divine reason uh, by virtue of the gift of, you know, grace which he imparts from the cross. And so his very acknowledgement of our weakness, of our malice, of our ignorance, uh, brings with it the prospect that we, we can move beyond it, right? That we can convert uh, and so not labor under the weight of that sin uh, now and in eternity. Father Jacob Bertrand, why don't you take us to the second word? The second word here is what our Lord says to uh, the good thief on the cross. He says, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. Take that from the gospel of Luke. This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. When we, when we think of this moment on the cross, our Lord crucified between the good thief and the bad thief, um, the, the three crosses there on, on Golgotha, um, we have to remember when we think of the suffering of our Lord, when we think of our own suffering, particularly at this time during the COVID crisis, when we're um, stuck at home, unable to attend the liturgies of Holy Week, or even the sufferings of our lives that, that go and continue beyond that, that suffering, though it can be sanctifying, doesn't necessitate um, holiness or redemption. Simply because we suffer doesn't mean that it's, um, that it's a good thing. Uh, in any case, 
we have to remember that that suffering is not something that our Lord causes or that our Lord intends, but suffering is something that from which our Lord is able to bring about salvation. He can sanctify that which is less than perfect in the world and in our in, in our lives. Um, the other thing to, to, to point out here um, is that in the first in welcoming the first person into paradise after the resurrection or after the crucifixion, it is a sinner who our Lord promises paradise to, not a saint. It's a man being crucified next to him. We don't know really anything about the good thief's life. We don't know if he had lived a good life and then had fallen away from, from the practice of the Jewish faith. We don't know anything about that. All we do know is that on the cross, um, he was crucified because he was a criminal and a bad man. And that on the cross, he begged at the last moment of his life, he begged mercy from the Savior. Uh, it is a sinner who is first promised paradise. And for us, that ought to offer us great hope with respect to our own lives, but also with respect to the world, um, that we don't know the inner workings of, of God's will, of people's lives, of these. There's so much that, we, that is unseen by us. But what we do know and what we are promised is that, that our Lord died for all, to offer that salvation to all. And if we but call upon him, even in the last moments, that, mercy's, that mercy is offered. One other, one other thing here, and thinking about the image of Christ crucified, I was given a, um, an icon of the crucifixion um, that Michael O'Brien, the, the Catholic author, he, he wrote this icon, and it has Christ's face and next to him two hands, one a clenched fist and one an open hand, representing the good and the, and the bad thief. And in all of that, Christ is bound to the cross physically you know he can't move he's nailed he's been beaten he crown of thorns all these things and yet his mercy is never bound uh his mercy is always reaching forth and is always expansive we have to have great hope in that even on even on sort of in the sadness of of good friday the silence of good friday that in that silence hope springs forth um i think about like in gk chesterton's uh, short stories the father brown stories there's this one called the queer feet where uh, there's this famous jewel thief who's about to get away. And then father Brown preaches him this kind of cool homily where he projects that thief's life into the future and shows how very terribly it will end. And it, um, it causes in him a conversion, right? And the jewels that with which he had kind of slipped away, dropped from the tree where he's hiding. And then he ends up becoming one of father Brown's um, kind of compatriots or colleagues in crime solving. Uh, and at the end of that short story, it says, uh, the mercy of God is such that he permits a man to wander to the very edge of the world only to pull him back by a twitch upon the thread. And that text is then quoted in Brideshead Revisited. I think it's quoted by Cordelia where she's talking about her brother Sebastian who showed some promise or at least Christ's hauntedness at the beginning of his life, uh, but who has departed from the practice of the faith and now is living in a kind of strange mercy outside of a convent in like some African country like Algeria or something like that. Maybe I got that wrong. Uh, and he's taking care of a guy, but in a very kind of bizarre relationship standing. Um, and and it's, it's meant to convey the fact that our Lord is poised to pardon. Uh, sometimes we envision that the Lord is poised to punish as if he were laid up in his heavens with arms crossed across his chest, looking for us or kind of like gazing upon us, lest we commit even the slightest sin so that he can smite us from on high. But truth be told, the Lord is looking for reasons to pardon. It's also captured very beautifully in the beginning of the, um, the Purgatorio where the first counts, like the first uh, circles of people that you encounter are the excommunicants and the late repentance. Some of these people are claimed 
by God by virtue of the fact that they, they said the name of the Blessed Mother right before they died, or they made a, an act of contrition as their lifeblood was ebbing out from their neck, having suffered like a battle wound, uh, but that the Lord is poised to pardon. And that should we should never be deterred from returning to him and to his mercy on account of the fact that we are ashamed of our sins because our sins never amount to anything by comparison to his mercy. The third word is woman, behold thy son. Um, Father Gregory, why don't you lead us into the third word? Sure. We read in the gospel of John. So the soldiers did this, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. So it's fascinating that the Lord shows himself a provider. Uh, in a certain sense, we see how the Lord exhibits kind of maternal virtues. A lot of people like to make a, a big stink of uh, like gender and the Godhead, and we're not going to get tripped up by that. God is not gendered, but he chooses to reveal himself in a particular language by which we're abound. And Christ took to himself a human nature, uh, that of a man. So we just kind of move on. But we also see, you know, I know that my, my mom was very particular that her kids have virtues that were classically masculine and classically feminine. Uh, so she didn't want you to be like a lunk or, you know, a damsel. She wanted you to be a well-formed human being. Uh, and we see that the Lord, obviously, he exhibits all human virtues because he saves all men and women. Um, but here there's a kind of maternal love that he expresses by giving us his mother. Uh, so we talk about how Mary is blessed with the grace of divine maternity. So the Lord takes human flesh in her womb and she herself is made holy in anticipation of that um, by God's uh, predestinating love designs. Uh, but it's an expression of God's love for us, God's maternal love for us that he gives us a mother in the spiritual order. So a lot of times, you know, we can get tripped up by polemics and apologetics about the place of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the dispensation of salvation. And this is something with which uh, many of our, you know, like Protestant brothers and sisters kind of take exception. But what we are effectively saying here is that the Lord chose to come into the world through the Blessed Virgin Mary and that in the time after his crucifixion and resurrection, he chooses to give grace through the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, so while it can be you know, difficult uh, to live a spiritual life sometimes in moments of desolation. Uh, God is near us. God is present to us. We can always have recourse to the Lord Jesus, but we also have a mother, not because God is deficient in his providing for us, but because he is super abundant in his generosity. One of the questions that's often raised or themes that's raised rather um, around this moment um, when Christ gives uh, John to his mother and gives his mother to John is that people say, oh, this moment is um, the beginning of the church. And uh, if you don't say that the church begins at this moment um, of this exchange of relationship between John and the Blessed Mother, um, people will say, oh, the church, is, the church is born on Pentecost. But neither of those moments is actually the moment that the liturgy of the church gives us um, as to, uh, as to answer the question, when does the church begin? The church begins, according to the liturgy of the church, at the Annunciation. That Mary has experienced the grace of being able to be with Christ um, from the moment of Christ's conception, and that it's on the Feast of the Annunciation. It's said directly in the Collect for that feast. It's at the Annunciation that the church begins. What we see here at the cross is an invitation into that relationship which has already been begun.
the graces of the Blessed Mother uh, are particular. They're, they're, they're extraordinary graces of salvation uh, and unique in the plan of salvation. Um, and what's so, ex what's so remarkable about this moment at the foot of the cross is that those graces are now poured forth uh, on the rest of us. Not that they're beginning, but that, 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 that those graces are opened up and we can participate in them in a real way. Um, be behold your mother, behold your son means to enter into that relationship, which is not beginning at this moment, but a relationship which has been begun um, that, that we can now share in. Um, so uh, with that, let's move to our, to our fourth word, um, a word which is often, often a word of distress, a word um, that is frequently the cause of consternation. The fourth word is, uh, is the word, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? This cry of lament of Jesus on the cross um, is often used um, to articulate a moment of complete separation of Christ um, from the Father, of, of abandonment, of desolation. Um, it's used to emphasize Christ's humanity, um, to say, well, well Christ, uh, to, to, to somehow suggest that Christ didn't understand what was going to happen in the workings of providence. Um, the reading of this verse that, that I prefer um, is the reading of the Fathers of the Church, which is that this line is the first verse of the 22nd Psalm, which is a psalm not of abandonment, actually, but a psalm of victory, of conquest. Um, the 22nd Psalm ends with the following words. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of nations will bow low before him, for kingship belongs to the Lord, the ruler of the earth. All who sleep in the earth will bow low before God. All who have gone into the dust will kneel in homage, and I will live for the Lord. My descendants will serve you. The generation to come will be told of the Lord, that they may proclaim to a people yet unborn the deliverance you have brought. That's the end of this psalm that Christ is beginning with this line. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Which is not so much um, a cry of abandonment or lament as it is a proclamation of messianic victory, that this is the God uh, who saves, the God who saves um, all that was and all that will be. Yeah, I know um, <clears throat> much of this is, excuse me, much is made of this in the 20th century that the Lord experiences a kind of God forsakenness. Um, and it's, you know, like canonic theologians will say that he empties himself to the point of like, like losing sight of his Godhead. Um, I don't know, ex you know, exactly how to formulate in the, that in a way that uh, makes sense. It's not a position with which we are terribly sympathetic. Um, <laughs> but uh, that the Lord rehearses this prayer, that the Lord rehearses this Psalm because he is not, not, not play acting, but actually like living the psalmody. Uh, there's a kind of clarification in the sixth century that all of the psalms speak of Christ and that we cannot limit the psalm speaking of Christ to just particular texts. Rather that we use the Psalter in the context of the Liturgy of the Hours because it is Christological and because it is Christocentric, which is to say that the psalms speak of Christ and Christ takes those prayers to his lips because he recognizes himself in them. Not like he's shocked or surprised, like, oh, look at me. Uh, but like recognizing the sense of like anamnesis, a kind of recalling, a kind of recollection, like a Eucharistic recollection that, that the Lord is present in uh, the messianic longing, in the messianic expectation, in the messianic prophecy of Israel that, it's, that was written 
uh, with anticipation of him, obviously by divine inspiration, and that when he engages with that text, it comes to its full purpose. So he's not saying that he's been abandoned by God or he's lost sight of his Godhead, but rather that the transformation, you know, which you described so beautifully, uh, is something that is at work in his members and so is being applied to the church through his passion. With that, with that um, let's move to the fifth word. Father Jacob Bertrand, would you take us into the fifth word? Our Lord's fifth word here on the cross is, is the shortest, I guess, by one word, at least in the English, and, and it's simply, I thirst. And it's sort of striking because if we look at the four words that have come before, the four phrases that have come before, and the, the two that remain that will follow, um, this sort of stands in kind of stark comparison to the rest. So we had Father, forgive them. So our Lord speaking to the Father. Then the, the, the second about speaking about paradise. The third with Our Lady and, and the church, as, as Father Patrick talked about. And now my before this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then I thirst. Why is it, we, we could wonder, why is it that in our Lord's providence, uh, that one of the seven last things that our Lord says to us on the cross is, I thirst. Where does that fit in? It almost sounds like kind of a, a sort of um, something that he was, he should have said to the side or, you know, but something that he would have asked for on the side, something that's not, it doesn't hold a sort of, at least at first glance, a kind of pride of place of speaking to the father, speaking about paradise, speaking to our lady, um, this cry of, of, from the psalmody from Psalm 22. And then I'm thirsty. I thirst. Well, we have to look at this from two perspectives. One from Christ is from his humanity, that Christ is a man. So in a sense, we have to recognize that this is not at all surprising, given the torture and the long endurance that, that our, our Lord has, has gone through. He is true man. And this, this whole, his whole passion, his whole crucifixion has been a devastating physical experience. So his thirst is certainly a physical one. We can think too here of, of the way in which our Lord has spoken, particularly in the Gospel of John, of, of thirsting and water. We can think of the Samaritan woman. We can think of the wedding feast at Cana. We can think of, and from the Gospel of Luke, Lazarus asking Abraham for, for a drop of water. All of this imagery of, of thirsting for um for sort of that begins in this physical kind of bodily thirst, but then moves us from the bodily to the spiritual, to the divine. And in this, and our Lord's saying, I thirst. Of course, we're talking, he's talking, referring to his humanity, but there's also a sacramental nature to this, that what is physical and human leads the person, leads our minds, leads our souls to what is divine. Because in the end, Christ's thirst isn't simply for a drink of water, but it's his thirst for souls, his thirst to save those for whom he has been crucified. Um, there's this as I mentioned, the sacramental reality to what our Lord speaks. And it's kind of providential that it happens as um, following what has already been said and, and the opening the vista of the graces of the church that now our Lord leads us into the sacramental um, reality of what's happening in the physical moves our souls and disposes us to what is happening um, in, in the supernatural. We're led from what is happening physically on the cross to what awaits us in the resurrection from the destruction of Christ's body to the resurrection that we're all invited to share in. So at, at, though at first this, this sort of two words, I thirst, might seem as sort of a throwaway line, it's very well situated in, in these last words that, are, that our Lord leaves us, leaves us because it turns our eyes from the cross 
to the glory that is to come if we but remain faithful. Virtually the entire spirituality of Mother Teresa can be summed up in these words, I thirst. And in fact, in all of the chapels of the Missionaries of Charity, the religious order Mother Teresa founded, in all of the chapels of the Missionaries of Charity throughout the world, one sees written on the wall next to the crucifix, these words, I thirst, which is a reminder that every charity that they undertake is not, um, it, it is not for their own glory. It's not just to, just to serve people on a humanitarian level, but, but the charity which we extend is extended to one another, to every soul uh, because of Christ. Um, so to alleviate thirst, to alleviate suffering, um, in the eyes of Mother Teresa is a fulfillment of Matthew um, 25, whatsoever you do for the least of these you do to me. To recognize someone who is thirsty is to serve Christ. Um, to hear Christ crying out, I thirst, um, is as Father Jacob Bertrand said, uh, a thirst for souls, a thirst for hearts, um, which is animated and um, given expression to by, by our care, especially in these times um, for, for, those, for those in need. Um, Father Gregory, why don't you lead us into the sixth word? Gladly. When Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So, as a way of unpacking uh, this pronouncement, we can think about uh, our Lord's love of us as that of a bridegroom for his bride. The imagery, obviously, is uh, used with some frequency in the scriptures, you think most often of Ephesians 5, when that, uh, that passage there, like verses 21 through mid-30s, 33, something like that, which St. Paul, uh, St. John Paul II used in his theology of the body um, uh, to great effect, you know, be subordinated to each other out of love for Christ, you know, wives, be subordinate to your husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So uh, this theme, though, it, it begins before the letter of St. Paul to the Ephesians. It's something that's evident in the Old Testament, that the Lord uh, uh, like reacts, or excuse me, uh, that the Lord uh, relates to his people as a bridegroom relates to his bride. Oftentimes, let's see, I read a book about this by Brant Petrie called Jesus uh, the Bridegroom. And he talks about how at the foot of Mount Sinai, the covenant that is enacted there is like a marriage covenant. So blood is taken from the sacrificial offerings. It's sprinkled on the altars to signify God. Then it's sprinkled on the people themselves to signify that the covenant has been forged, that they are betrothed to the Lord in peculiar fashion. And then in the time that comes after, whenever Israel transgresses, whether it be acts of idolatry or of, um, let's see, murder or of failing to take care of widows and orphans, whatever it might be, the prophets will liken that act to adultery because they are proving themselves unfaithful to the God who is so faithful to them. So God's very identity is bound up with fidelity. Though you be faithless, yet I remain faithful, for I cannot deny myself, the scriptures say. Uh, but there's this sense that Israel is um, inconstant and unfaithful in her love of the Lord. And so there's a promise of a new covenant, a covenant written on our hearts or a covenant which will give us new hearts. Uh, and that that covenant comes to perfect expression. It comes to completion in the Lord Jesus Christ, who identifies himself or is identified as a bridegroom. So you can think of how St. John the Baptist will talk about him as the bridegroom. He's just the friend of the bridegroom. And then when Jesus is asked why his disciples don't fast, whereas the disciples of the John the Baptist and the Pharisees do, and he says, well, the bridegroom is with them. You know, the, the friends of the bride chamber do not fast, but there will come a time when the bridegroom is taken from them and then they will fast. 
and I guess it was customary in uh, Jewish family life at that time that uh, a bridegroom and his groomsmen would prepare for the wedding with a period of great festivity, but that after the wedding, the friends of the bridegroom would redouble their fasts. And so the Lord is talking about a time now in the present, you know, as the gospels describe a festivity of anticipation, but that he'll be taken from them and then they will fast, which is to say that the Lord is gesturing towards his crucifixion, uh, which is lamentable, sorrowful, but which is a marriage. And so when we hear him say from the cross, it is finished in the Latin, it is consummated. He's speaking of, uh, he's, he's finished the, the love designs, which were first spelled out in the old covenant and which have come to perfection in his self-offering on the cross, which is a kind of marriage of God and his people. So the betrothal which began at Sinai is perfected in the marriage that Christ effects in his, in his flesh and on the cross. It's something too in, in all of this that, that our Lord pronounces that, that it's completed, that, that it's finished, you know, throughout the gospels, he slowly leads the prophets and those who are listening, or sorry, his apostles and those who are listening to him um, kind of on a journey of coming to understand his mission better and better. So if you look at kind of the progression of the Gospels, um, Christ, as it gets closer to the crucifixion, as it gets closer to his entry into Jerusalem, begins to speak about those things more explicitly. So at first it's in signs and parables, and then more explicitly. Um, in the Gospel of Mark, it's not even until the crucifixion that Christ is first recognized as as the Christ while he hangs on the cross. Um, so it's it's kind of like putting our Lord's putting the period and he's, he's signifying to us very clearly that this is the work. You know, as Father Gregory was saying that this is sort of the wedding, um, the wedding feast of our Lord, um, it, the culmination, but this is it. In, in a sense, he, he, he's not speaking, in, or not in a sense, in reality, he's not speaking in signs or symbols. The cross isn't simply a sign. It's not simply a symbol, but this is the mark. This is the culmination of Christ's um, saving mission. This is why he became incarnate, why he is true God and true man. It is finished. Here it is. Here's the focal point of our, of our faith, of our redemption, of our salvation. No questions asked. Here it is. It's finished. It's, it's kind of like, uh, just, there's no more beating around the bush. This is what our Lord offers for us. This is what he did for us. This is what he does for us. And he's very clear about that, which is beautiful and, and reassuring that there's no confusion. There's no confusion. The final word um, of Jesus on the cross, the last word, comes from St. Luke's Gospel. Into your hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. This verse is prayed over and over and over again um, by religious, by monks and nuns throughout the world in the night prayers of the church. Um, as we prepare ourselves um, for going to sleep each night, it's a kind of, it's a kind of, um, it's an expression of our readiness for death, um, a handing over of our lives. And so we pray in the liturgy of Copland each night, into your hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. For us, it's a kind of small renewal of our vows, um, saying, Jesus, my whole life belongs to you. Every, everything, everything is yours, Lord. Take it. And we see Christ making this full expression of his life um, here on the cross. Um, as it was pronounced, it, it's, all, it's all been done. Um, it is finished. And so in this word, Christ reiterates um, this offering 
of his life, and proclaiming that the whole of himself is being handed back over to the Father. He's giving his spirit back, uh, having accomplished this work um, for which he came. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, how does one capture it? There's a sense in which the Lord's whole life is uh, expressed in just this fashion. Uh, when St. Thomas talks about, um, so in, in, this, in the treatise on Christ, before he gets into the life of Christ, he's kind of just filling in different gaps in our understanding of the hypostatic union, what it means for there to be a, a human nature wed to a divine person. And then he describes kind of like aspects which touch the Lord's humanity. He talks about, the, he talks about Christ as a priest. He talks about his prayer. And then he talks about his subjection to the Father. So from all eternity, the Son proceeds from the Father as a word, as a word spoken, as a word begotten. Uh, so he, you know, the Father is God, the Son is God. There is nothing lacking to the Godhead as it subsists in the, the person of the Son. But his divinity is always from the Father, not in time, obviously, um, but it's always from the Father, which is to say he is originated from, begotten from the Father, from all eternity. So he is God from the Father. But when the Lord takes to himself human flesh, his humanity assumes a similar shape, that he lives his whole life from the Father and to the Father. As some of the fathers of the church say, he lives ad patrem. Um, and in doing that, he shows us a way forward. Because you can think about the drama of sin is that we have lost our Godward gaze. We have looked away from the Lord, and as a result of which, our lives have devolved or descended into chaos. But the drama of salvation is to have our, our gaze once again recaptured by the Lord, to recover our Godward gaze. And we see that in the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the entirety of his life. But in the last word that he speaks, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. That's the way in which he lived. That's the way in which he continues to live in our humanity. And that's the way in which his humanity is called up into his divinity and the way in which we can hope uh, to enjoy something of the same. So I'd like to conclude now um, with the collect from the celebration of the Lord's passion. Let us pray. O God, who by the passion of Christ your Son, our Lord, abolished the death inherited from ancient sin by every succeeding generation. Grant that just as being conformed to him, we have borne by the law of nature the image of man of the earth, so by the sanctification of grace, we may bear the image of the man of heaven. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please continue to... Um, share these episodes. We hope that this Good Friday um, will be a, a quiet moment of prayer for you, that you'll be able to dedicate it um, to, the, uh, to your own meditation on the passion of the Lord uh, within, of course, all the confines of our present situation. Um, tune in tomorrow for our episode on Holy Saturday, um, our preaching on the seven Old Testament readings of the Easter Vigil. Thanks for listening to God's Planet, a work of the Dominican Friars of the Province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.